You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Chinese APT is active against targets in Myanmar and the Philippines. Cyber espionage campaigns suggest that there's a thriving market for zero days. MI5 warns against spying, disinformation, and radicalization. Our evil continues to lie low, and the Kremlin hasn't seen nothing. CISA offers ransomware mitigation advice. Bogus Coinbase sites steal credentials. Ransomware attacks on old SonicWall products are expected. Daniel Prince from Lancaster University looks at getting into the industry and whether a degree is worth it. Our guest is Curtis Minder from GroupSense, tracking three divergent ransomware trends. And Rewards for Justice offers a million bucks for tips on cyber attacks. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, July 15th, 2021. Kaspersky outlines the activities of a Chinese APT tracked as Luminous Moth engaged in cyber espionage against Southeast Asian targets. Myanmar and the Philippines are receiving most of the group's attention. Luminous Moth, Kaspersky says, has an affinity with Honey Mite, the threat actor better known as Mustang Panda. The current campaign, which began with operations against Myanmar, but has since shifted to the Philippines, and is unusual in that it combines high volumes with highly targeted approaches to a relatively small number of targets— sweeping attacks for the chosen few, as SecureList's headline puts it. The attacks have typically begun by spear phishing and then subsequently spread through malicious payloads carried by infected USB drives. Post-exploitation, the operation relies on a bogus Zoom application to identify and exfiltrate data of interest. Some of the victims were also infected with a Chrome cookie stealer. Google's threat analysis group yesterday blogged about four campaigns it's found in the wild that exploited zero days. One extensive campaign targeting mostly European government officials and believed to be the work of a Russian intelligence service used LinkedIn spam to push malicious links. Three other campaigns, including some deployed against Armenian targets, appear to have been sold to various unnamed governments by a zero-day broker. While Google's estimation is that a single broker was behind the sales, CyberScoop sees Google's report as also exposing a growing market for zero days, in which many of the buyers are nation-state security and intelligence services. According to Sky News, 
Ken McCallum, the head of Britain's MI5 counterintelligence service, warns that private persons remain targets for recruitment or manipulation by hostile intelligence services. He thinks that collection is happening at scale, and Sky News paraphrases his warning as saying that this activity takes place in a gray zone that sits deliberately under the threshold of what would normally be considered an act of war, but can be just as dangerous if ignored. Russia, China, and Iran are particularly called out, and his warning deals as much with disinformation as it does espionage. Not all of the threat is foreign. The BBC reports that McCallum sees indigenous racism as driving recruitment of younger subjects in particular into more or less organized extremist activity. The R-Evil ransomware gang remains in the wind, gone from its customary haunts on the web. TASS says Russian authorities know nothing about R-Evil's vanishing act, which, if one takes it at face value, would suggest that R-Evil hasn't been closed down by Russian security or police agencies. News outlets, including Germany's Spiegel and the English-language Moscow Times, review the three leading lines of speculation about the disappearance— a Russian enforcement action, an American takedown, or simply our evils going on the lam, but little new light has been shed on the matter. Consensus holds, however, that relaxing vigilance against ransomware attacks would be unwise. Not only are there other gangs out there, but it would require a Panglassian optimism to think that our evil is down for the count. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, the nation's risk advisor, as it calls itself in the announcement, has released advice for managed service providers and small to medium businesses on how they might harden their systems against ransomware and cyber espionage. The advice is familiar but useful, brief, and well-founded. Its overarching advice about how to think about the threat, whether criminal or state-directed, is to understand that, quote, these actors can exploit trust relationships in MSP networks and gain access to a large number of the victim's MSP's customers. Compromises of MSP's can have globally cascading effects and introduce significant risk, such as ransomware and cyber espionage, to their customers. End quote. Security firm Inky reports that the value Bitcoin has assumed in the marketplace has driven a rise in impersonation scams, in which criminals mimic the appearance of the widely used Coinbase exchange. The scams begin with phishing emails, some of which Inky finds relatively well-written, a cut above the run-of-the-mill subliterate criminal hackwork. Should the recipients be unwise enough to follow the invitation to, say, restore access to your Coinbase account, they'll be taken to a credential harvesting site, and from there matters will proceed in the usual unfortunate way. Two-factor authentication remains a good idea and best practice, but Inky points out that it won't always protect you. Some of the Coinbase imposters use Evil Jinx, a man-in-the-middle framework that proxies a real website with an Nginx HTTP server that intercepts data, including two-factor authentication tokens. SonicWall has warned its users that some of its older appliances are expected to become victims of an imminent phishing campaign making use of stolen credentials. The Secure Mobile Access 100 series and Secure Remote Access products that still run unpatched and end-of-life 8.x firmware are the products that carry the risk. 
The vulnerability SonicWall expects to be exploited has been patched in more recent versions of these products. The U.S. State Department's Diplomatic Security Service this morning offered a reward of up to $10 million for information leading to the identification or location of any person who, while acting at the direction or under the control of a foreign government, participates in malicious cyber activities against U.S. critical infrastructure in violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The announcement particularly calls out cyber espionage and cyber sabotage, although not under those names, and the related threat of ransomware. The offer is being tendered under the state's Rewards for Justice program, which the department has operated since 1984. Rewards for Justice, the State Department says, has paid more than $200 million to over 100 tipsters since its inception. Most of the rewards have gone for tips that help prevent terrorist activity. The program's use against ransomware is significant in that it marks the seriousness with which the U.S. government seems to be treating ransomware. Providing tips can be risky, and the State Department knows this. To help ease the minds and secure the safety of potential informants, State writes, quote, Commensurate with the seriousness with which we view these cyber threats, the Rewards for Justice program has set up a dark web, Tor-based tips reporting channel to protect the safety and security of potential sources. The RFJ program also is working with interagency partners to enable the rapid processing of information as well as the possible relocation of and payment of rewards to sources. Reward payments may include payments in cryptocurrency. End quote. So, if you've got a tip and it pans out, State promises to take care of you. And finally, Peter Lavashov, the Russian national, who in September copped a guilty plea to U.S. federal charges addressing his role in the creation and operation of the Kilohos spam botnet, is now up for sentencing. The government memorandum in aid of sentencing recommends that the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut follow sentencing guidelines in the case, making no case for unusual leniency or stringency in the matter with Mr. Levashov. Those guidelines call for imposition of a sentence of between 12 and 14 and a half years. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. 
multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Curtis Minder is CEO at GroupSense, a cyber reconnaissance, digital risk, ransomware strategy, and negotiation firm. He and his team have been tracking divergent trends in ransomware, a topic I recently spoke with him about on the Hacking Humans podcast. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. On the threat actor side, Dave, it's it's chaos. As you've seen in the news and the media, we've seen higher and higher profile cases. Uh, Those are the ones that we know about. There's a lot that we don't. Um, We've also seen, because of those high profile cases, the threat actors changing tactics, changing names, changing brands. (laughs) So there's a lot Mm -hmm. going on. Uh, Even in the last month, we've seen quite a bit of change in the activity level and, and also the tactics that the threat actors are using. Well, there's some specific things that you all are tracking here. Let's go through them one by one. What's the first thing that's on your radar? We're obviously intimately involved in the actual ransomware cases themselves. So we're, we're doing a lot of the negotiations on behalf of the victims. So we're tracking you know, the, the metrics associated with those negotiations, which groups are, are most prolific, uh, which groups are using which malware components, successfully also what amounts are being asked for and or paid in 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 those exact negotiations but on top of that we're actually tracking the individual threat actors themselves uh and their sort of their their track record and history in the space i see now one of the things you're you're tracking are what you describe as crypto brokers these folks who manage the crypto payments can you describe that to us what's going on here uh so we're, I wouldn't use the word tracking. We, we have relationships with and are, are um, well acquainted with the brokers that basically take, you know, the, the, the standard currency. In this case, a lot of times it's U.S. dollars and convert that into cryptocurrency uh, for the purposes of doing a, 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 a cryptocurrency transaction. Um, in this case, that transaction is, is often paying, uh, you know, a threat actor or, or a ransom payment. There's, there are uh, specific operational and financial security measures that you have to take, um, or you, obviously you don't have to, but it is advised that you take <laughs> um, <laughs> doing a transaction like this. And so, you know, we, we've worked with a number of brokers that, that help us facilitate those processes. Um, and and the, I can't go through those specifically, but the idea is, you know, the threat actor, when you're, when you're actually making the payment, um, cannot easily trace back to you know the victim's bank. 
Mm. That's yeah. So there's a whole there's a whole you know infrastructure there that that helps protect um, the, the 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 reverse tracing of the transaction. Where do you suppose we're headed? I mean, what what are the trend lines? Are we are we on a trajectory where you know this can't continue? There, there's going to have to be some sort of disruption here. Yeah, I think I think I hope that we're getting to a point where we can start curbing this and. There are several ways to do that. There's a technology approach, which you know we've got, you know, myriad companies trying to solve this. How do we protect companies better from ransomware? There's uh, there's there's a sort of a policy and best practices approach, which, by the way, is is highly effective. And, and what I mean by that is uh, just following some basic security hygiene on the front end will will make will basically remove a company from being the low hanging fruit. Um, so that that's probably one of the cheapest ways <laughs> to address this. Mm-hmm. And then the third way is is uh, legislation and, and government uh, support. And I th- that's something like, for example, the ransomware task force is is making recommendations around how can the government uh, help the victims that are that are in these scenarios without facilitating a ransom payment. And so mm-hmm. the the net outcome from this would be that the threat actors no longer get paid for what they do. Now, what I will what I'll say, add to that is they will find another angle, <laughs> and we're already right. seeing you know threat actors pivoting off of pure ransomware and creating, uh, for example, Marketo created a. Uh, by the way, this is not the same as the marketing company Marketo. There is a threat actor group called Marketo, which is. A little bit confusing and unfair uh, to the marketing company. <laughs> but the, threat right. actor, the threat actor group Marketo, for example, has already pivoted to just selling stolen data in packages rather than doing the ransomware deployment themselves. So they just mm. exfiltrate data and then they've got a, a stolen data marketplace that they've created. So we, we're seeing them get creative about uh, changing their approach. Um, so that's, that's, we're going to see that regardless of, of what we do on the specific to the ransomware problem. That's Curtis Minder from GroupSense. You can listen to the rest of our conversation over on the Hacking Humans podcast. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Daniel, always great to have you back. Um, you know, I realize this is a, be the business that you're in. Uh, this is a bit uh, like asking a barber if you need a haircut. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering what your take is these days in terms of folks for who are looking to get into the industry. How valuable is a degree? Is it necessary? Is it worth the investment? Well, I'm sure uh, some of some of my colleagues will probably shoot me, uh, uh, but I think the answer is it, it really depends on the individual. Hmm. So the way that I see it, the as the industry's grown, so is the number of entryways into the industry, and specifically, you know, if we go back ten again, ten or eleven years when we set up the MSc program at Lancaster. You know, we didn't have all of the wonderful uh, and terrible YouTube videos explaining how a certain attacks and and how things uh, how things operate, and we certainly didn't see as much information available uh, on the internet uh, at large. And so, 
the universities did what they did best, which was act as a, an aggregator of that information, a curator, if you like, and then down-selected what they felt was appropriate with guidance from, from industry and taught that particular knowledge. But as the, again, as the industry's grown, as it's increased in maturity, that information uh, is now largely, again, available um, online. And there are some very good tutorials, there's some very good information, and there are some very good industry qualifications um, that you can go and you can go and get. So it depends on what you actually want to do in the industry, because the other thing that's changed is the type of roles that are available. You know, it's hmm. not just the guy that works or the girl that works in the IT department. There are a number of roles that work across the business. So is a degree worth it? And the answer is typically, as always, it depends. Um <laughs> but the role of the university, uh, I think, is is uh, a university is is an important one because we act as that curator of knowledge, but also a key developer of knowledge. And we try very hard, along with a number of other universities, to ensure that we provide that knowledge that we are generating into um, into our degree programs. So perhaps unlike you know your standard qualifications, industry qualifications, you're getting a, an extra bit of special source, if you like, within with a university degree, because you're getting access to that cutting edge research, which you can then take into industry, which would help differentiate you from from other people. Is my perception accurate that um, part of what a university degree brings to the table is uh, the notion that someone's going to come out of there well-rounded? You know, they, they will have, because of the requirements of the degree, uh, not only will they have knowledge in their area of specialty, but supporting areas as well. Yeah, that's certainly true. So one of the things that we have to do when we're designing modules, for example, which a lot, a lot of people do, is we, we have to talk about the uh, knowledge subject-specific areas. So, you know, to talk about digital forensics, the tools, the techniques, the approaches that you have to, to apply. But then we also have to design the program to say, well, how does teamwork play into this? What are the other kind of what would uh, yeah, effectively professional skills have, do we have to teach as part, as part of this? And one of the things that I've, I've noticed within our degree, uh, because it's a multidisciplinary program, where we have modules, technical modules, but we also have law, criminology, international relations and management within that, we're teaching all those other disciplines, but also we're teaching how to synthesize the approaches across all those disciplines to, to, to round people out. And one of the things I, I observe is that when you get a computer science graduate, their thinking is tend to be very black and white. You, you can either build it and it works, or you can build it, it doesn't work. It's a very, as you would expect, a binary solution. Right. Whereas where, when you get um, you know, some of these other disciplines you know, where it's about discourse, it's about discussing the, the grey issues and, and, and then taking a position, bringing that into cybersecurity and security in general, which is a, you know, generally a grey um, great sub subject, how much security is enough? Well, it depends. Having that ability to host that discourse, to be able to build that into your day-to-day -day approach is vitally important. So, one of the other things, as you point, rightly point out, uh, that I firmly believe in in the role of the university is to not just provide that knowledge and skills, but also, you know, producing professionals and, and in improving the, the professional skills that sit around uh, our graduates and our students. Is there a message here as well to the folks who are doing the hiring that, 
you know, that they need to be careful to not um, be filtering out folks who don't have a degree? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the degree is now not the only good route into cybersecurity. And I, I've spoken about this uh, in, in the past. Degrees and universities work for some people, but they don't necessarily enable you to access all the talent that we desperately need into the industry. And so if you're only focusing on do they have an undergraduate computer science degree, have they done a master's degree in cybersecurity or some combination of, of that, then you're going to lose the the younger people who perhaps don't have the potential opportunities that people like myself have had to go to university mm. Uh, 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 but they are still passionate. They still have a keen interest. They still have keen intellect to be able to work in this particular field. And we we need to find ways to encourage that that pathway into uh, into cybersecurity and give them the options. There are lots of very good self-taught individuals out there. Uh, and so it's vitally important that we support them to get in, into the industry, like I say, to get the talent that we need to deal with some of these really complex problems that we have faced day to day. All right. Well, Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.